Hello and welcome to another edition of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast that views the world of the Star Trek universe from a non-Trekkie perspective. Uh, I'm Liam Dempsey. I'm joined by my usual regular co-host, Paul Wilson. You should say Matt first now, though. I'm semi-regular. <laughs> <laughs> you get demoted, boy. Yeah. <laughs> right, you're going down the pegging order. Yeah. Matt Brothers. Yes. <laughs> you chance. are my official number two. Hello. Number two reporting in. We are also joined by Paul Wilson. We're very lucky to be honoured by his presence. He's here. <laughs> yeah, took, took an evening off, like raising a child. <laughs> yeah. And we are also joined by returning guest, Mr. Bob Salen. Uh, good evening to everyone. And you're live and in person. Well, I, I, the last time I checked, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, from our usual place of the RAF Club in Piccadilly. So this is uh, an interesting place to record, certainly, especially as uh, both you and I's grandfathers, Paul, um, so were in the RAF yeah. in World War Two. So it's kind of special for us. And we're also joined by Bob's lovely wife, Sandra. Hello there. Yeah, you might be chiming in occasionally on this. I, I mean, this is really kind of special because uh, two years ago, um, we had Bob on the podcast. Bob was the producer on Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. And you were very kind to us, Bob, and came on and gave us a great interview about your time uh, producing The Wrath of Khan, lots of other things. And now you're over in the UK and we actually get to meet you in person and chat to you a bit more. It was delightful. I was uh, surprised and gratified. Yeah, it's great fun. And also great fun to be able to meet here at the RAF Club. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lovely place. Thanks so much for inviting us. So basically, we just wanted to get into a few kind of, as Paul said, kind of viewing this as a bit of a coda uh, to the last episode we did. And we just wanted to pick up on a few little things um, that we had more questions that occurred to us since we last interviewed you. It's been two years. It's hard to believe. Um, well, and, and we've been discovering more about the Star Trek world in that time as well. Because <laughs> We're now experts. Well, well, obviously, this is the whole thing. We come from the non tracking perspective. So as we discover more about the universe, I think probably more questions have popped into yeah. our mind. Yeah, but it's still Trek Two still stands on the top of the mountain for me. So it's like you know, yeah, yeah, it's, it's your favorite, isn't it? It is my favorite. We did a ranking episode where we kind of picked our favorite, and it still came up on top for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so yeah, and no, it's very, very high up the list. Certainly. These guys, not so much. <laughs> not so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, perhaps you and I should just try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on, on the official spotlight ranking, I believe it came in at number two. Uh, but. Okay. but Bob's, Bob's contribution, number one. <laughs> um, one thing I just wanted to start with, because uh, I listened the other day to the commentary track uh, that Nick Meyer did for the Star Trek II Rothcom Blu-ray. There's a couple of things that popped up um, combining that with the previous interview that we did with you, where we ask all our guests what their experience with Star Trek was before they got involved. And you were saying, right, you weren't into it at all before, you know, before you got the job, True. basically. And uh, listening to Nick Meyer, uh, the director of the film, it appears that he was not a Trekkie either at all. And it occurred to me, do you think that the pair of you were better placed to rejuvenate the franchise after kind of, you know, the underwhelming reception of motion picture given your detachment to it, as you had no preconceptions, you're perhaps approaching it from a more grounded perspective? 
Oh, that's a very astute question. Um, I think that's probably true, and in, in, in all candor, I have to say that I, I never thought of it. Um, to me, it was a matter less about Star Trek than it was about telling the best possible story. And that's what I consider myself, and I know Nick does as well, is that we're storytellers. And to be able to bring, uh, I, felt, I felt that, not specifically Star Trek, but I felt in general, as, as we've discussed earlier, that a lot of science fiction has a, um, a, an overly intellectual element to it. And, I, and that is not where I come from personally. And uh, for me, I, I think we have to talk to, with people, not to people. Mm. And I, 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 have, I bring a great, a lot of my work that I've done in the past as a director and as an actor is intuitive. It's not necessarily schooled. So I felt, you know, how can I reach people? How can I touch people? And oh, by the way, it has to be within the framework and a valid framework and a, and a truthful framework of Star Trek because we can't ignore that. That is what this is about. But how can I humanize it? And that was kind of what went through my mind at the time when I first came aboard. You're a Heidi, behind rules and regulations. Who am I hiding from? From yourself, Admiral. Lieutenant Savick was right. You never have faced death. Logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Sensors indicate a vessel in our area, closing fast. He tasks me. He tasks me, and I shall have him. I've so been filming a few script iterations we were chatting off Mike earlier on. And, you know, you were despairing at times, some oh, of the stuff that was... That's like, an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> but I was saying, you know, the big sci-fi idea in the film is the Genesis planet, and that's the kind of thing. But the way the characters kind of approach that is <laughs> referencing the Bible and things like that is quite humanising. You know, they're, they're taking this situation as like, this is crazy, like technology. You know, what? how can we fathom this? You know, was that something that was kind of a... You know, that came through all the drafts, or was that something that... Oh, they no, were, definitely not. No, the, the initial drafts, and there were many, there were more than I can even recall. I, I'm thinking in the 40. Jesus. Uh, I, I can't recall, but I remember there was, a, there was a, several boxes filled with drafts. Um, Harv Bennett, the executive producer, was uh, taking the point on the story, uh, and he involved a number of writers, um, Sam Peoples and some others, and the draft, and I would give notes on everything. Um, a lot of the drafts came through, and it was again it had, it had weird uh, creatures and things that shot electricity from their fingers and that sort of thing. And I was aghast mm-hmm. because I felt that this is more suited to a comic book than it was to or a feature. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> um, so uh, no, it was pretty. It was a very despairing time, and I and I voiced my concerns. Uh, because the studio was, could have cared less in terms of our problems. They wanted a picture for release, and they had a release date. And, um, and, but I kept looking at these drafts saying, if we make any of these to myself, it will be a disaster. 
I guess nothing really changes, huh? It's, it's always... Well, it's the there's there's always, there's, as I learned. <laughs> it's the same thing as with the first film. They set a date and they pre-sold that film for December and right. were right up against it and yeah. delivered it with, like, what, a day to spare. And it's interesting Paramount would repeat the same issue again. Oh, it's not just Paramount, as, yeah. as you pointed out. It's yeah, just, yeah. it's the way the game is played. And they have, you know, they have obligations and they want to fill that schedule and you have to kind of conform, despite the fact that they may send you notes, which make no sense or little, little sense to me. Um, but they want, they want the picture. So you, you struggle with all those elements. And um, it, was, it was a challenge. And I, my concerns went, were up to, the, up to the wire until my secretary, my assistant, uh, Deborah Arakelian, uh, suggested Dick Meyer. And um, I was familiar with his work. I think I mentioned this in the previous work mm, in the broadcast. Mm. Um, and uh, in truth, I give, although Nick and I had our issues about uh, directing and schedule and some other things, um, it was his uncredited rewrite, page one rewrite, is what saved that film. Hmm. Were there any elements that survived all drafts? Were there any key elements of the film that you knew you wanted to put on the film from the start that survived all the changes? Or was it like no, nothing quite got through? No, no, there were elements, but I, I would be, uh, I'm, I'm at a loss. Mm. I mean, it's been 35 years. Well, I should imagine it's calm. It's, you know, yeah. We, oh, we, yeah. But that's no, yeah that, was Har- that was Harv's idea. He went back and viewed all, all the old episodes and came up with the idea of, of Khan, and that, that, was, that was brilliant. But it was how it was handled. Mm. It was Nick putting in the human elements of 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 Kirk aging, and of the sun, and those things that that really gave it depth and gave it some humanity, and which I applauded. Mm. As I described it to Nick when we when we started off, I said, you know, this is really a space opera, and I said we need all the conflicts, we need all the human emotions, and we need all the the elements of, of that to make this real, as opposed to let's shoot a bunch of things off in mm. space and talk funny. And, you know, which I see a lot of these days. Um, so that was it, really. Well, it's that balance, isn't there, of going big on what's going on the screen, but staying small in the focus on character and story and everything. And it's like finding that balance of, yes, we can go big on huge space battles, but if the focus is down to, like, two men, you know, it can really key off. And I think that's what the motion picture maybe missed coming back, having with the show being off air, like to actually really drill into them being older and everything they're going through. And I think maybe Khan coming in as a reminder of the past helps like push that along. I think that's uh, you know very accurate. Mm. Um, and as I say, uh, it, if it isn't about human beings, primarily, and how their feelings and their conflicts and their emotions, then what have you? Well, it's funny, isn't it, actually? The Trek movie franchise, certainly the ones based on the original series, the first half, six films, uh, rather uniquely, especially in the kind of Monday setting, kind of allow those characters to age and stuff to a degree that I don't think would ever happen now in a major blockbuster, do you? In terms of, like, you know, I don't think any of kind of like the the MCU for instance or anything like that would, would be allowed to age up as much as the kind of you know because obviously when the original Star Trek series went out in the late 60s they were younger men and then you kind of fast forward to over a decade later to the motion picture and then after that that series runs into the early 90s yeah. and you know these characters are really allowed to age on mm. screen and kind of see a real maturing of those characters. Well, the equivalent today would be a show that ended like 15 years ago, but when it ended, all the characters were in their late 
40s, early 50s. Yeah. And then you brought all them back now to carry on a six-film franchise that would go on for nearly another 10 years. That is quite like a, a leap, I think. And yeah, it's quite many people would do it. Um, well, yes. But if you stop and think about it, what choice did you have? Yes. Right. At that stage, certainly. Yeah, like, yeah, I, mean, uh, yeah. I mean, and and how far are you going to extend it? I mean, what does it lead to? Wheelchair races and tie-staining <laughs> tie contests? <laughs> well, I think they were almost there in 1994's Generations. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a <laughs> creepy element, I think, in yeah. other things. But hey, that's reality. And they've used it as best they could, yes. considering the reality of where those key figures are. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's interesting, like you say, what choices they have, because at the time... Um, yeah, that was all they had. We're talking before we even right. get next generation. Whereas right. now, you can do anything. We're in the biggest purple patch for Star Trek kind of there's ever been. Suddenly, it's the, it's one of the biggest TV shows in the world, just Star Trek Discovery. Um, one of the things I was going to touch upon is, of course, you commissioned uh, Robert Fletcher's uh, new kind of more militaristic right. costumes that we right. used. From Rafael Khan onwards, really, through to well, through to the, their appearance in Generations, yeah. everything like that, and uh, I'm saying this kind of I think leans in to the fact that you and Nitmar were not from that kind of trekky world in the sense of because Gene Roddenberry's vision was quite this utopian right. uh, kind of like peaceful kind of future, and if you look at the motion picture, obviously we discussed the space pajamas before. Right. And, you know, I know we're sitting here right now in the Royal Air Force Club, and I know you have a great respect for the military, uh, Bob, and do you think kind of you were infusing the franchise almost with your own ethos there and kind of pushing it in a more, something that reflected a kind of more military direction? Uh, yes. I, 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 once again, being an outsider... Uh, I, I came at it with, with storytelling, and I thought to myself, well, how can you run a, a vast vessel like that mm. if it isn't somewhat militaristic? Now, even if they all dress jolly and wear green and do all that sort of thing, the, the bottom line is there has to be a chain of command, or otherwise nothing will get done, mm. or at least nothing get done efficiently. So, yes, uh, that, was, that was partially my concept, and again, it stems out of my own military background because I served both in the Marines as an oncom and as an officer in the Air Force. So I, I must confess there's a certain tendency, uh, and also being a director. But anyway, no, that, that, was, that was it. But it was Ed and Nick uh, bought it, and Nick wanted to do Prisoner of Zenda uh, uniforms. And I said, you know, that's a, that's a little, little gemuschlikite or something. I just <laughs> didn't feel that it was exactly a right. Fetish, yeah. uh, well, a bit, yeah, you yeah. know, with the high st stiff collars and all that. So I suggested cutting out those, those collars, removing the collars. And I said, since every department has its own uh, color uh, of a team, I said, let's have to make them turtlenecks. And Bob Fletcher said, no, we have one machine. I think it's the last machine made in, the, in America. I think it's called a contrapuntal contra machine or something. But it made that quilted look. And, and Bob Fletcher, uh, it was his suggestion. And so we used that. We tried to do everything we could to, to use every bit of what was left uh, somehow. Oh yeah, so no, so the um, the, the station like the, the, it was right. basically an upturned model. From I the turned the model upside down. Yeah, yeah, and, and I said, you did not realize. I was, I watched that many times. Like, hang on a second, it was years later. No one would ever get it. Yeah, no. <laughs> you have to watch it many times that I have. Right. <laughs> that's my question really. Is like, how many times have you seen it? Hundreds. 
Yeah, hundreds. Yeah. Outside of the edit process, so when it's done, done? Well, it's at, of... at various screenings to which uh-huh. I've been invited. Um, and then oftentimes people will say, hey, would you watch that with me? And yeah. so I did that yeah. and so on. But I, I, I can't say, I don't, think, I don't think my wife and I want to see it more than me. Well, we've got a surprise. There's another aspect in retrospect now. Yeah. We're looking back 35 years. You know, I see the flaws. Yeah. And I think you're, also, you're remembering what it was like that day. And yeah. you're, you're seeing beyond right. the set, essentially, aren't you? Yeah. And there's always that kind of, you know, different perspective. But you do appreciate it kind of as a piece. It's like, sometimes it takes that time to sort of, like, you know, I can appreciate, like, why people might like it. Because to you, it comes a bit of a surprise sometimes how revered it is. Absolutely. To, a- a- absolutely. I never in a, in a million years expected it to be received as well as it was. We knew we, knew we had a good film. Yeah. But I never, ever expected it to reach the almost mm. iconic level. Uh, I mean, definitely, not even almost, I would say, but I would say iconic, 100%. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that says to exactly what you were saying earlier, the power of getting the story right and the characters right, because it's, you know, in a franchise that has so many entries, people are even now, like 30 plus years later, are able to see it for what it is, which is just a great film. And that can't get taken away from it. So, no, no. Yeah. And it's, it is, I have to confess, it's very gratifying because no one seems to care that. These visual effects look a little amateurish. No, I, I've never thought that. Like, really, I, mean, I suppose you could look at the the, the CGI, which of course you you, were, you pioneered essentially the first free CGI sequence. Yes. You know, but it, you know, it works within the story as that could just potentially be you know a, a mock up. You know, like a we have pre visualization these days, and that would be the level of like you know right. your quality would you know do to it. What's the point of rendering it like too much? You know, <laughs> you know, it's the finished well, article. I did tell you this, you know, the, that I pushed for the um, for the creation of the planet to be done on a computer. Yeah. And uh, and I got a lot of resistance from ILM because they had never done it before. Mm. Mm. And but they did do it, and it was one of the most expensive sequences in the film. Mm. And uh, they told me that what they would do is they would do all the design work and the input during the day. And then at night, when everyone went home, they linked 200 private computers together in order to render. I mean, today, you can take one machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do it on your phone today. (laughs) (laughs) Virtually, virtually, exactly, exactly. Would 82 be the same year as Tron? It is, yeah. Yeah, 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 there you go. But Tron was, was like, hand-drawn, like, a lot of... Oh, yeah, wasn't it that, although it is meant to be in the computer world... Well, yeah, there are some CJ elements, but they're kind of, like, it's mostly its own... What they call rotoscoping, like right. which is a, oh, an age sure. technique, yeah. Because yeah, what state was ILM in at this point? Just having been born for Star Wars, right? Well, that's right. This is your their first outside project. Uh, it was the first outside project, right? But simultaneously, they were doing ET, mm-hmm. Poltergeist, and Mine, and Dragon Slayer as well. No, not yeah. that, not 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 co- not coincidentally with ours. Uh, the only reason I know that is because we were, my wife and I were invited to the um, the first per- private screening. Of uh, of ET, or uh, right of ET, and, and with Stephen, with Stephen, and you tell me he's got a hit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did he say what the hell is this alien thing? No, no we adored it. We yeah, adored it. And then, we were, then afterwards, uh, we were invited. We were with the ILM crew and Stephen and, uh, and Mr. Lucas, and we all went on a boat, toured around um, the harbor in uh, in the bay in San Francisco, and eating and drinking. And there's a wonderful story. Uh, do you want to tell it? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I was Lean into the mic, Sandra. Come on. I wanted to be a photographer. And my husband bought me this really nice camera. And no cameras were allowed on this for this party. 
He didn't want any people, you know, taking pictures of No him. cameras. No cameras. No cameras. But since I was the producer's wife, they said, okay, you can take your camera. So Steven Spielberg comes up to me and asks me to take a photograph of himself and George Lucas. He said, I don't have any photographs of myself and George. Would you please take a photograph of me? And I said, sure. <laughs> and I proceed to take photographs. And, you know, I am taking photographs of them. And then and I thank them. I then go back to our hotel room and I, un, what do you do? You unscrew. Open the back of the yeah, camera. Yeah, I open the back of the camera. It was empty. It was full. I hadn't put any film, film in my camera. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I'm not a photographer. <laughs> and that was the photography career. Right. Like, that was it. That was it. We, we also haven't been asked back. <laughs> <laughs> haven't been invited back to Lucas Ranch. Just yet. Like, like, what do you remember? <laughs> it's like, we're still waiting on those photos. It's like... <laughs> Um, I was going to say, Bob, that I remember you telling us that you kind of interviewed all of the actors, the main cast uh, from uh, Rafa Khan, uh, because uh, I think both you and Nick obviously didn't know that much about the characters and the world of Star Trek, and you kind of needed to get the information right from the horse's mouth uh, there. And I know that Shatner and Nimoy both said they'd never had a more happy experience working on a production. Do you think that comes from being able to be actually far more involved in their own character development through the fact that they were kind of talking directly to you and Nick and kind of, you know, actually about what they their opinions were of their characters because they'd lived with them for so long at that point and therefore felt more invested in their characters and maybe that's what turned Leonard around from wanting to be done with Star Trek to actually going, oh, now I feel more invested in Spock. I want to continue. Um, complicated question. Uh, I think it was part and part. I think part of it was everything you've detailed. I think part of it was that we did ask for their input. We, we definitely wanted to know because they knew more forward. They lived the characters, you know, and we, and we were coming at it from the outside. Uh, and their notes were very helpful. There were some things, and I can't remember the specifics, I remember some things that Bill was unhappy with, uh, but once we showed him that he had as many lines as Leonard had, everything was fine. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, Bill, just joking. <laughs> um, uh, so it was partially, yes, we were very open to their input. We didn't accept everything they said. Um, because again, but again, I think they were also enormously attracted to the fact that they had something real to do. Right. And that it had to do with, again, coming back to the basic story of human beings and, and or in Nimoy's case, almost human beings. Um, and I think that it was really a combination of those two things. It was listening to them, but also giving them something special to play. Mm, mm. Is there any unused ideas you remember from the cast who said, you know what, Bob, this would be great for my character to do? <laughs> I think Kirk would definitely beat Spock up. <laughs> no, no, um, no, I can't. No, I, I, they, you know, Nick, Nick really uh, did a brilliant job and uh, mm. the, the ideas were all there. And 
Uh, and 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 the, the guys just responded. As I say, uh, they were they were all they were, you know the the key always is what kind of a set is there. Yeah. And as I've said so many times, it was a happy set. Mm. Very telling. And um, well, you know, every now and then, you know, Nick would get into it with some with somebody, but it wasn't anything serious, and it was ironed over, and we moved on. Mm. Yeah, and they yeah. quickly responded because this is a young director, relatively untried as well. And I think you know we've got people who have been in the business quite a while, you know, know their characters so well. There would be that kind of initial bedding in period where they're kind of like just testing the perhaps the waters, and you know, how was that? How did that go down? Well, as it goes down on every set, yeah. I mean, actors want to test the director, and the director wants to show he's in charge or he she's in charge. And it depends. It depends on the on the on the actors. Uh, there was a bit of that, and uh, there were some concerns because of Nick's relative inexperience. Uh, but they so were impressed, I think, with what he had written, that they were willing to cut him some slack, and um, and it was helpful. Right. Uh, Dick, you know, Nick did make errors, and uh, and I had to have them corrected. Um, so, well, but but overall, you look at it and say, well, and Nick fought a lot of things too that I wanted. Uh, he, he very actively resisted the concept at the end, where mm-hmm. we give, where we give the you know we have Spock's sarcophagus on the Genesis planet, and uh, he didn't want any part of that. I mean, he really didn't want any part of that. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yeah, but uh, that's the way it's going to be, kind of. Yeah. And he tried to go to the studio about it. And the studio backed me because you shot. That ending, I did. You? Yeah, because I, did. I believe that Nick actually kind of refused to kind of do it at the time. Therefore, you took a storyboarded it, shot the whole thing. Right. I can, once once we decided that we were going to do it, that we were going to create that element of Spock could return. Mm. He's not really going to die. Because science fiction, as I said, we can do anything. We leave the door open. Mm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I storyboarded it just as I would have done a commercial. And uh, I mean, I had we, and we had ILM do it. I went up and directed it. And I remember we had wind machines and we had smoke machines and I had the the, the sun flares going through the the, the shrubbery. And we took uh, ILM even took it was their idea. Uh, they had they wrapped vines around various plants. We shot it in Golden Gate Park, and uh, you know that with music you could do anything. Yeah. And uh, when I came back and we uh, we edited it, my editor said to me, uh, who used to be on my staff, by the way, when I had my commercial company, he said, do you know how long this is? I said, no, Bill, how long is it? He said, 60 seconds. And I said, I can't break that time frame, can I? It's funny, you that we, I looked at one of your commercials on YouTube, which you uploaded, which is Tom Selleck. Very oh, good. yes. Safeguard doesn't need heavy perfume to mask odor because it's so effective at removing the cause of perspiration odor. Great. Good morning. Good morning. He smells just the way a man should smell. Clean. 60 seconds. I think it's odd for us to see commercials that were, you know, they allowed you a minute. Like, you know. Oh, it was luxurious. Yeah. Well, yeah, because the funny thing, I think I might send it to you. When I was in film school, um, one of the things they do here is Kodak run a massive uh, competition where every film school in Europe takes part and kind of basically different brands lend their kind of name out so that film students can create commercials uh, mm. for them and they mm. all go into this big competition at BAFTA and kind of basically there's about every year about 140 made 
and then about eight get nominated for awards up at BAFTA. And my one that I did for Kodak got nominated for an award. Well I done. won a Kodak award there. This was in 2008. But we had to stick to 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Well, as you know, the advertising business changed. Generally, when we did in the old days, olden times, with the hand crank cameras, we did 60 seconds. And well, you generally did a 30. And also, a tw- sometimes often a 20. Right. And well, it is a 10. So uh, it really, but then it's, t- it's time you all buying time for that. It costs so much money. So that's one of the reasons they decided they went out to the 30s. And 30 became the mainstream. Yeah. So uh, you get these longer versions that they have mm-hmm. like little star sequences shortened, don't they? So mm-hmm. everything starts as a minute and all 30 seconds and you get the five mm-hmm. second iteration, right. you know, just like right. a splash near somewhere in the in the commercial break now don't you so mm. there's so you'd always design your commercials to be you know they could run long they could run short they'd be sometimes yes uh often, they were dependent on the story you were trying to tell and sometimes you ha- you did have to shoot a little bit extra for the 30 to to, to make it uh make sense mm. because so you it wasn't just arbitrarily taking the footage out of the 60 and saying okay we'll just you take this off, lop that off. You had to, you had to plan it out just like you would. That's the, to be a little extra that wasn't in the sixty, but you could put it into the thirties to pave right. over a gap. Right, mm. right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, now there was an occasion where I, where I, I remember I had one for a data ship account, and I used uh, Rod Serling's voiceover, <laughs> and um, and it was so good. Uh, in the thirty, I said, you know, I can stretch this. This was in post. And I can, I have little bits here where I can take a little bit where he walks up to the machine a little longer and so on. And I was able to cut a 60 out of it by using, expanding it as yeah. opposed to reducing it. Right, right. But, you know, I, I love the world of commercials. I love the world of advertising. I loved, I used to work for an agency. I created a lot of them. I produced a lot of them. And um, the discipline in terms of storytelling mm-hmm. is really quite extraordinary, particularly for the type of thing that I did, which was mostly working with actors and mostly and mostly comedy uh, why people ever asked me to do car commercials I never understood because it wasn't my strength the technology yes well no, I just but you know they wanted whatever reason I was grateful because it helped me put children through school well this is the thing you really want to ask about your commercial work because you've directed what a thousand no, commercials? close to two thousand yeah, close to two thousand commercials which is insane um, and you've worked like you say worked with a lot of Big actors in commercials and stuff like that. I've got a couple here that I just want to, and literally just want to say them and be like, if you've got any anecdotes or thoughts (laughs) about working with them, then feel free to kind of intersect Jack Lemon. Oh, well, uh, he he was, well, first of all, let me just tell you that working with some people at that level uh, as a director uh, is kind of daunting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like, what am I going to say to Jack Lemon? I mean that. I mean, I'm going to direct Jack Lemon, but the reality is, the bigger the star, the more open they are. That was my experience, and they understood that we're all in this together. And he was a joy. He was an absolute joy. I I, I, I gave him the setup. I told him what it was all about, and then we would do a rehearsal or two. And I offered some suggestions, just in terms of minor inflections, particularly because yes, remember that although he's selling something I didn't want him to sell. And a lot of actors uh, think because they're doing commercials that they have to sell it. Play a salesman. Play, Play a salesman. salesman. But no, and, I, and I go back to what I always said, which is, no, no, you're talking with your this the, the viewer. You're not talking to them. And they immediately got that. Yeah. And, and then he would soften it and just, I said, be you. Just be you. Just tell me. 
just explain to me what this is all about. He was a, he was a delight, and he was funny. He was a great, great, lovely man, lovely man. Yeah, no, I bet, I bet he was. And uh, I mean, when was it that you worked? Oh with? my word! No, you're asking me. Now. Back to the time of the world. <laughs> directed that many to really kind of formulate them in your mind. Yeah, I can't, it had to be in the sixties, late sixties, right, 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 perhaps early seventies. Oh, couple era. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Larry Hagman. Larry, we did a Schlitz commercial together, and he was he was a hoot. I mean, he was just great fun. Uh, I'll never forget, he lived in Malibu, and he wanted to have the, the meetings at his home. And I said, well, fine. So we go down there, and we're meeting him, and he was just great fun. But the real, real topper was that I got to meet his mother. His mother was Mary Martin, the Broadway star. And she was nobody in this room. <laughs> They're so looking at me. <laughs> <and slow>. <laughs> <laughs> Sandra is shaming us. <laughs> I was looking at Matt because I gave him a book on the silent cinema. I'm like, you know, right? Hey, okay, it's not silent cinema. It's no, Broadway. Broadway, okay, different. Yeah. Okay, well, look up. So, what? what sound sound Pacific, of music. Sound of music. I mean, please. Anyway, fellas, Mary Martin. So yeah, I got to meet her, and Larry was great, and we did a fun thing together, and uh, that was that. Yeah. Would this have been Dallas era? I think it was post. Post. Was it? Was it just afterwards. Was it? I think so. After he was shot. <laughs> yeah. But he did, had a nice recovery. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure he did. Yeah, Maybe yeah, in Malibu will do that. Joan Rivers. Oh, yeah, well, once again, she was she was just terrific. I, once again, I was you know, a little anxious about dealing with her because she's so strong in, yeah. in everything she does. But we went to her home and I met her poor husband who later <laughs> died. And uh, we chatted and everything. And then she came out of the set. This was for Big Boy, which is a hamburger house franchise in America. And uh, she did her work and she was funny. And um, that was that. Uh, every, nothing, nothing really special about you know th that experience other than the fact that uh, she was fun, and she was, and she, she was. She, all, all we asked her to do was be who she was, and, and that's all you needed, isn't and it? That's, that's, the, that's what you're buying. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so I, I guess that would be a thing with a lot of these kind of like big name kind of commercials. It is it's kind well, of you don't want them. To, you don't want them to play something else. You're you're paying the money for who they are. Yeah, yeah, hundred so, percent. Their recognition. It's interesting how many people didn't get that coming into it, but you had to kind of just do that. Kind of, yeah. What's yeah. my character? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> James Mason. Oh, when I was still, this was before I had my commercial production company and I was working for Foot Conan Belding, FCB International. And um, I'd been a producer and then I became a writer because I was rewriting everything everyone was doing because in those days no one knew how to write for television or radio. They were all print people. So I, I went into the copy department because I thought, well, I'll expand my skills in that area. And I was doing a commercial for uh, the U.S. Forest Service, which is largely about preserve our forests, be careful of forest fires. And it's a, a national account and uh, very important. And so I wrote this commercial uh, about, and I wanted, and I suddenly thought, well, I, James Mason would have just be a great voiceover. So he accepted. And we went into the studio, and I'll never forget, I'm sitting there in behind the glass wall, and we have these huge speakers, not tannoys, but big nonetheless. And he begins to read my words. Yeah. Now I have to tell you, that was a that was a, <laughs> that was a thrill. That was a thrill. That resonant, beautiful voice reading my copy. And I but it wasn't quite the tone that I had in mind, but I couldn't bring myself to direct him. <laughs> 
But he graciously, after a take, said, uh, well, Bob, was that what you had in mind? And I said, well, not exactly, Mr. Mason. And then I gave him a few suggestions. He said, oh, he said, that's very good, Bob. That's very good. And he did it, of course, exactly the way I wanted it. And when, it was, when we completed it, he asked if we had some extra time. He'd like to do some readings he had in mind. And he proceeded to read Lewis Carroll. Oh, wow. And, and the Jabberwock. And I have to tell you, that was thrilling. Yeah, <laughs> was thrilling. But he's a lovely, lovely man, a gentleman. Through, throughout. Having well, it, I'm sorry. It's exciting to get, like, you know, so you have the copy, but then you could have just started shifting more lines. In. I just want to keep, keep you here talking. Just to do, do my yeah, voice exactly. now. Like, like, yeah. Are they sure this is still part of it? <laughs> 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 no, he was, he was uh, you know, this this, uh, this reminds me of a comment I've made because uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with a few uh, top-notch British actors. And that is, I, I love British actors and actresses. Um, and the thing I love the most about them is that it's all about the craft. Mm-hmm. It's not about the baloney. It's all about the craft. And when I was directing Albert Finney, and once again, I was intimidated because here I am, because I'm an intuitive person. I don't, it comes from my experience as an actor or whatever, but I'm not schooled. But I, it either rings right or it doesn't ring right. Mm. And um, so I must, those intuitions must be okay because I made a living with it. Um, but anyway, in directing them, uh, it, it was never it was never a question about that. There was always, if I told Albert to walk up a wall, he would look at me and say, "Well, how fast and how far?" And that's just the way it was. And you you often don't have that graciousness and uh, professionalism, shall I say, with some American actors, not all. Yeah, and as producer on something electric too, it's good that you have that kind of you know. Nick, could you just go and talk to them for a minute? Like, you know. I, I, no, I, no, 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 I didn't. No, I, you I didn't. didn't. Step the bounce at all. No, 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 much. Can't, don't show. do that. Yeah. 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 Don't do that. Mm. Well, and I, I think everybody was happy to be there. Mm. I think they really, and as time went on, they became happier uh, because they realized that, that what they were doing was being appreciated and it was different and it was it had more depth to it. And I think they could sense, even beyond their own egotistical needs, mm. that this was going to be something unique. Yeah, and I feel like there's not a lot of flab on that script. There's not a lot of flab on that script because you know, the, no. the, unlike potentially the previous film, that you can make another film out of the, the trims. Yeah, right? <laughs> I know the outtakes, right? Yeah. Whereas yeah. this film, you know, there is a director's edition, but it's only just a marketing thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But you know, there's not more than five minutes wasn't used. Uh, the, I think the only, the only thing I recall that we cut was when the young crew member from the engine depart, uh, department dies, yeah. and there was. I don't know. My recollection is that the we were afraid that the, that the that Scotty and some of the others were a little too emotional over this young lad's death, and we didn't. We were afraid of what the audience might presume from that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I'm telling you the truth. He stayed at his post when the trainees ran. It wasn't my perception. I, I have to qualify that. It wasn't that, because I thought it was just fine. Yeah. But there were others who were concerned, shall we say. As a long-time viewer, I think it actually makes it worse by cutting it out, because it's like, they, there's an, they, you know, he should be upset because it's his nephew. Right. They took all the nephew stuff out, and now he's just very that, upset. That's the about thing, about isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing that sees actually yeah. his nephew. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the, the perception, just a quick cut on the room and edit room, and it's then changes everything, doesn't it? He was sobbing over an empty room. I yeah. <laughs> 
Um, we should talk about Picasso Summer just for a minute because oh. the last time I spoke to you, I had not seen Sundays and Sabelle, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, film directed by the original director of yeah. the project, Serge Bourguignon. There you go. Uh, and, you know, I know that this really, because this was, um, Sonny Sabelle won uh, Best Foreign Film. It did, indeed. indeed. It can be awarded. And I think this was the whole reason that Carve wanted him to direct it in the first place. I've got to be honest, Bob, after watching Sundays and Sabelle, uh, I just wish you got to direct the whole thing. Because <laughs> I, I, I've got to be honest, I was not a fan. Uh, so you should have been on it from the start. Well, uh, the, the, you want the whole story? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you go right ahead. All right. So well, my company was doing the uh, productions and post-production servicing for uh, Bill Cosby's company. It was called Campbell, Silver & Cosby. And Bill Cosby, you know, who's a somewhat disgraced comedian, uh, was a big star in America. And uh, they decided, and my one of my colleagues and classmates from UCLA Film School, uh, Bruce Campbell, uh, decided that they wanted to do, and he suggested that uh, uh, take the short story by Ray Bradbury called The Picasso Summer and turn it into a film. They, he was approached by uh, Wes Hershenson, a friend, who said that he had gone to France and he had talked to Picasso and that Picasso was going to do the animation. Hmm. So, you know, it sounded pretty exciting. Mm. The payoff is that he, Wes Hershenson never talked to Picasso and it was a lie. So the, the wheels began to grind and I was called in, Bruce, uh, Hershen, uh, Bruce uh, Campbell, my friend, uh, took me to a meeting at the Bel Air Hotel and uh, to interview Serge. And so we went in and uh, I listened to Serge's take on how he was going to do this film. And we walked outside the Bel Air Hotel to our cars and Bruce turned to me and said, well, what do you think? And I went and I gave him a thumbs down. (laughs) I gave him a thumbs down and he looked at me and he said, well, why? And I said, Bruce, I I don't know how to say this, but I, forgive me, but I think he's a fraud. And I said, I think you're going to get into a lot of trouble. And he said, oh, but he did Sundays and Sabella. I said, okay, Bruce, your money, your show. And I walked away. So the long and the short of it is uh, Serge went overseas and shot for, um, I can't remember, six weeks or whatever it was, and came back and was doing post-production in my facility. And the cut that he delivered was undeliverable. You could not, Bruce Campbell people could not deliver it to Warners. So at that point, they realized they were going to have to go back and do the film over again. So they asked me to direct it. And uh, because I had directed the first part of a Bill Cosby special for them, and they had been very happy with that. Um, So we, uh, they start, I'm afraid the producers, as much as I like them, um, they really had a bit of a death wish because (laughs) what they did was they brought in a writer whom I will not name um, to do this who was from television. And he had no sense of what this story was all about, first of all. Secondly, the basis of the whole picture was weak. There's no way I would have ever greenlit a picture based on this short story because it's a bit of light froth about a man who wanted, who's disgruntled with his work and wants to seek Picasso. Darling, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. I was just thinking about that building I designed. A warehouse, a stupid warehouse. Come on, it'll be the best warehouse in San Francisco. 
three months of my life just so people will have a place to put everything they don't want. You'll love the party tonight. It'll cheer you up. 200 people designed that project, 2,000 people built it, and by the time they get it up, it'll be obsolete. Listen, there'll be lots of interesting people there tonight. You know something? Your husband designed a big, empty box. They wouldn't even let me put a toilet in it. So what? I mean, you know, what's, what is that all? What does that mean? But, <laughs> but hey, you know, they're, they're the buyers, and I'm, a, I'm an employee. So um, anyway, so they worked on the rewrite, and I kept looking at the script going, hmm, well, that's pretty bad. And uh, But then they, I, I had a choice. I had a choice between staying in Los Angeles or going to the south of France with my wife first class and getting paid $4,500 a week and first class expenses and direct Albert Finney and Yvette Mibio. And I said, you know, I'm just going to go to the south of France. I'm going to be completely Chris's own And, and you know, I do the best I can. So when I looked at the script and I realized there was no substance in it, that I decided that I just wanted to make the, the most beautiful picture I could with two very attractive people. And so that's when I hired Vilmos, yeah. Ziggy. Mm. And I knew him because Ziggy worked for a, one of my competitors in the commercial world. And I had used his uh, his associate, his his colleague, um, who died also, forgive me. Leslie Kovacs. Les Kovacs, who was also lovely. And these guys were so talented. They were just wonderful. And so I met with, uh, I met with Ziggy. And um, and we got got along, and I explained what I was trying to do, and he was on board, and so we went off, and we, so, well, I'll never forget this. So I said to the producers, I said, "Well, are you going to get Albert Finney back again?" And they said, "Oh yeah." So they flew to Corfu, where Albert was recovering from the breakup of his relationship with Gene Marsh. Remember upstairs, downstairs? Mm -hmm. So I guess they were a couple, and I guess they'd broken up, and Albert was pretty unhappy about it. And so the producers came back and said, yep, we got Albie. I said, terrific. How long do I have him for? And they said, well, he signed up for three weeks. I said, three weeks? I said, how do you expect me to do this picture in three weeks? He said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll never forget this. Don't worry about it. Albie will stick with us. Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that isn't quite the way things worked out. And the reason <laughs> things didn't work out is because what Albert and I was having lunch one day at La Colombe d'Or in Saint-Paul-de-Vence, uh, where we ate frequently when we were shooting up in that area, um, he noticed this very attractive woman at the next table. It turned out that her name was Anuka Mee. And I remember a man and a woman? Mm. Well, she's a stunner. I mean, she's just lovely. Anyway, uh, next thing I know, Anouk is hanging around the set, and we're going out to dinner together. And rebound. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he had great taste because she was, uh, you know, she was lovely. So what happened was, I think Albert wanted to go and play with Anouk and didn't necessarily want to finish doing this picture. So we did the best we could uh, under those circumstances, and I did reshoot. I did shoot new stuff, a lot of it. And, and they re-edit, as is, is, is my editor said, if we could have stood up in front of the Academy and stopped at every sequence we said, and explained to them what we did, we would have won that Academy Award because the, the, the change of everything, uh, the end sequence was part of a dream sequence. It was the beginning. It, nothing was the same. It was completely changed. Um, and so the last night, I'll never forget this, my dear wife and I were shooting in a huge estate in, in San Jean Cap Ferrat. And where they had set up all the tables in a 12-car garage, 
and we're, we're eating and there's Albert across from me and Anuka's across from my wife Sandy and we're sitting there and Sand, my wife starts crying and uh, because she was so sad to see it all, <laughs> all, all come to an end. It was very touching. So it the best three weeks of my life. <laughs> and Anuka's, you know, comforting her and everything. It was, it was very touching. And when Albert told me he wasn't going to stay, I said, Albert, I said, you know what? He says, it's not you, Bob. It's not you. I said, well, what is it? And he said, it's, it's I, I've got to teach those boys a lesson. And I thought to myself, oh, you upset my wife now. <laughs> <laughs> but, I said, but, 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 but I said, Albert, this makes me almost a director. <laughs> and he said, it's not you, it's not you. So he and I got along very well. We often had dinner later. Yeah. And, so, so yeah. and as honest as you are in Hollywood as well, Albert Finney was honest about it as well. You know, he's like, straight down the line, they're yes. doing it this because yeah, they've got to learn their lesson. <laughs> and you did get that directing credit, so... Yeah, well, because the bulk of the work is, is mine, I mean, and the whole structure of the thing is mine, and uh, and all the massive amount of reach of new new footage is mine. And, and there's very little that really, if you saw the original, you would not recognize, think it was the same film. But at bottom line, though, you look at it and you go, mm, okay, but so what? Yeah, because it's just. But again, the wonderful, wonderful things for me was when they they did hire Michelle Legrand to do the score. Yeah. And when I went to Paris to to oversee that score, and the cue came up in the opening titles, and my name came up, and that music hit with 120 musicians from the National Conservatoire Orchestra, I went. Really moving. Mm. So, uh, well, it must be in. It's seeing your name up there in lights. That's that's the thing, isn't it? That's yeah. the thing that dreams are made of. And say about like you know, films and music like that is such an amazing combination. I think you know yeah. you also picked Horner for for, for the for the I did. Two, I did. From a box of thirty tapes I read right. and. Uh, you know, again, you know, when he went up to Paramount and argued for him for a bonus, like that was amazing. Oh, they, yes, they, they, and I had and to he, fight for him. I know, and I think like this is the contribution that man made to that picture. You know, it really elevates. Absolutely, and for such a young like composer as well. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's a remarkable score which I love. But it's it, again, you get that kind of sense of like we. I know we're onto something good, but when you kind of put that on top of it. How, how did you feel when you saw it with the with the pitch? Oh, dance? I, I, I you know, what can I say? I got chills. Mm. I mean, you sit in the scoring room and you see that happening. And just, there's another, there's a dimension beyond a dimension that that adds. Good music can do that. Mm. Bad music can also have the adverse effect. Oh, now very. Uh, but have you ever seen <laughs> the Getaway directed by Sam Peckinpah with Steve McQueen? No, like, like, I, I, we might have. We might have. Like. At one point, basically, they took the score that they were using, they replaced it with this Quincy Jones score. Oh, like, oh. No disrespect to Quincy, like, but the like, it did not fit. It's a hardboard crime picture with Steve McQueen being really cool, and the Quincy Jones kind of all over the place, jazzy score does not work like, at all. And it, it does, it did, yeah, it's, it's a, a, it's a brilliantly yeah. directed <laughs> film. With, you know, and McQueen was the king of court at the time, and it completely rips on. No, it's, it, you know, people, it, it's really interesting how many filmmakers uh, are not really sensitive mm. to uh, to music. It's so important and you obviously have a good ear for scores, Rob, well, given that, you know, James Horner, you can't pick them out very early on. 
in his career and you know just look at the contribution he ended mm-hmm. up making to kind of film right. um and actually to bring it right round to Picasso Summer again um the last ever score that James Horner uh, did was for Antoine Fuqua's, um remake of yes. uh, Magnificent Seven. Right. Uh, the original Magnificent Seven, of course, starred Jules Brenner, who I believe is in Kachasama, but I'm credited. What, tell us about that. Well, that was in part of the original footage. And right. The, and everybody who signed up, uh, I was told, was told they were going to meet Picasso. That's how they got everyone. Right. And it was not true. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I've got, I've got to be honest, Bob. Uh, Picasso definitely did not do that animation footage. <laughs> I had a lot of trouble with that. In fact, some pretty vociferous and loud arguments about it. I said, this looks like Saturday morning television to mm. me. The recycling and all this kind of thing. And I, I was appalled. But once again, you know. Well, that's the thing. You didn't direct any of the animation sequences, did you? Like, yeah, it was, no. it was already kind no. of in place. The only, the only thing I was able to get out of it was were the transitions, as opposed right. to fading out from one scene, live action, into the animation. I insisted that there be a visual transition. And sometimes, you'll, if you see it, you'll see those, it goes from leaves to leaves. And anyway, I, I insisted on that. But that's as far as I got. Mm-hmm. I had no control mm-hmm. over that whatsoever. It's a shame, Rue, because the the pedigree of the film itself, it involves so many talented people at the end of the day. I mean, yourself directing, you've got Phil Moss being the director of photography there. Who, this, I mean, this was all before we had done anything else, though. Yeah, true, true. But I suppose, like, now, it's, it's yeah, when you look back at it in hindsight, because obviously all this went on to do, like, you know, I mean, when you look at the films... Uh, the voice was director of photography for things like The Deer Hunter, oh. they, of course, Heaven's Gate, Maverick. Um, you know, you've got Mc- Albert Mc- McCabin Miller, yeah, McCabin Miller. Yeah. You've got uh, yeah. Albert Finney in the lead, uh, Michelle Legrand, uh, doing the score, who did loads of great scores, Umbrellas of Sherborne, right. right. uh, Never Say Never Again, of course. Um, you know, Ray Bradbury, uh, short story mm. is based on, of course, was The Man Pie in Fahrenheit 451. Uh, so there's there's so much at yourself directing, of course. Yes. Like uh, yeah, I'm not that <laughs> there's so much there. Okay, yeah. like you know, it's 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 a shame, but it just shows something you can have like this massive sea of incredibly talented people, and you know, and even then, but like you say, you kind of you slightly hampered by the fact that you're kind of picking things up from someone who can't well, drop the ball. More profoundly than that mm. is that there was nothing to begin with. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is short story. I mean, if you start the story itself, as charming as it is, is not the basis of a motion picture, even as a framework for Picasso. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah it really yeah, is yeah. laying the tracks as you're going, isn't it? It's it's like, let's see what we can make out of. And and, and you know, <laughs> they just didn't get it. Yeah. They were seduced by the by the name, you know. But yeah, so the want to so, Picasso. So you, could, you could have all the talented people in the world, but if you don't have at its core a good story, it's a waste of time. If only you could have got Picasso for the sequel. Well, <laughs> Picasso do, Winter. Do you know? Do you remember the end sequence where the, 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 they're walking away? They never found Picasso. Yeah, well, that's the thing. They don't care. Yeah. Yeah, but you see the man in the beach. Drunk. You you see yeah you see a kind of someone who's it's meant to be potentially Picasso, yeah. isn't it? His oh, name yeah. was Duke Fishman. Right. And we shot that at Catalina. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, <laughs> <must pick> up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and that was that was that was Picasso. And everybody thought we had Picasso. Mm. 
Not so. Could could I just interrupt you a can. little bit and mention? You know, you were talking about my husband being a director. Did you know that he received the Palme d'Or for the best commercial, for the director of the best commercial in the entire world? Yes, I believe you mentioned this last year. You sent us, you sent us the commercial to watch. I did. You oh, did. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was for great. Cam- Cam- yes. yes. Yeah, right. indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I won the Grand Prix, honey. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Out with the old and in with the new. I'd like some Camay, Mr. Rogers. Oh, Miss Becker. Old Camay or new Camay? What's the difference? Oh, twice as much lather in the new Camay. Super lathering Camay. So much more lather, so much more cream. Feel. <laughs> twice as much lather. I feel it. Twice as much cream. I feel it. Imagine all that lather putting all that cream on your skin, Miss Becker. I feel it. I feel it. But also, when we ride in the car, you're talking about his sense of music. When we're riding in the car and there's, I don't even know what's on, some obscure piece of music, he knows every single one of them. He's got this sense for music. I, I, can't, I can't read a note, Yeah. but I've loved music since I was a little boy. And when I started working as a, I don't know if I ever told you this, I started working as a professional actor when I was 14 in radio. And, uh, and um, I appeared on some big shows in America, back in ancient times, you have to say on radio before television. And I also started directing for NBC when I was 15. And um, part of the directing a radio show is picking your music cues. And so I used to secrete myself in the NBC library in Pittsburgh. A literal kid in a county. Yeah, school. I think I was just picking my nose at 15. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still doing that, mate. Still doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't changed. Not, not a pretty picture. <laughs> uh, anyway, I used to go into the music library and spend the entire weekend selecting music. And I just loved it so. And I can retain it. And I can hear not... Maybe perhaps not as much today, but I can read you know, about four, four, six bars. I can pretty much know which Shostakovich, which Prokofiev, which Tchaikovsky, which whatever. What are some of the film scores that really stick out for you? Mm-hmm. Well, that's too tough. I'd have to think about that. Well, I know one. Which one? Where the horses go on the water. It's a British film where they walk, where they run. The, oh, no, it's not horses. It's the guys running out. Oh. Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Da, 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 da. Right. right. No, I thought that was idea. What a break that was. What an unusual choice that was. Atypical. Mm. Uh, I thought that was I thought that was really a remarkable choice. Uh, and it worked. You know, initially, I, I had some misgivings. I thought... Synthesizer music for a period mm. film about Britain and the Olympics? I don't know. But boy, it, it, it worked. And I have to confess, I probably wouldn't have gone there. And speaking of Chariots of Fire, uh, when we were struggling, I had a list of about 30 or 40 directors. Did I ever mention that? I no. Oh, I, I couldn't find anyone. Who's on the list, Bob? No one wanted to do the picture. <laughs> you know, we were, we were facing an impending director strike. Director's Guild strike. Right. And so I was trying to be creative and looking elsewhere. And one of the directors, because I had seen Sherry Safari, and I thought, Hugh Hudson. I said, what a fine job he did on that. And so <laughs> I'll never forget this. I um, I mentioned the name, and then everybody looked at me with, with blank stares and eyes. And uh, I said, well, let's, let's run the film. So there were four other executives from Paramount and myself, and we're sitting in this vast theater in, at Paramount, 
and we run the film. And the lights come up, and this key executive looks at me and says, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, no, and they just went out shaking their heads. Yeah. They saw no application whatever to the talent of Hugh Hudson telling that story to Star Trek. And I could, I, you know, at that point I thought, I wonder if I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? Because now I think there's a lot less kind of pigeonholing of kind of certain types of directors and yes. certain types of films. Yes. Now, so it's a big thing now for a director who directs a tiny little indie film mm. to then suddenly get handed the keys to the kingdom. Uh, it literally just was at a, uh, a live screening of Safety Not Guaranteed, which was directed by Colin Trevorrow who went on to direct Jurassic World, mm. who literally went from directing this right. tiny little uh, £750,000 right. film, and then it was a big indie hit, and suddenly he's getting offered Jurassic World, which of course... I was amazed. It was, it was crazy, kind of, actually, mm. and he was talking about you know the experience of going from that to that, but that is kind of like a regular thing now, yeah. which seems so. an odd... Uh, odd transition to go from that tiny little yeah. thing to suddenly this huge Especially next year as well like I think all the major comic book films next year are all coming from female indie directors because yeah, mm-hmm. Birds of Prey coming from Kathy Yan who did a film called Dead Pigs I believe yeah, which yeah. is like a really small thing and then Kate Shortland as well I think uh, Chloe Zhao for Eternals they've all come from like small indie films being given the keys to some massive kingdom. And I think that's a risk that gets taken a lot more now, even when it doesn't always work out, it's still happening. Well, I, I applaud it. Mm. Yes, yes. I, I abso- absolutely applaud it. I, I, I wish that it happened sooner. It's wonderful. Right. Shall we adjourn back to the pub? All right. Wonderful. This has been great fun. Thanks yeah, it's so been so... Bob, it's always fun to speak to you. Thanks so much for coming on again. It's just great just to have a, a, a chat in person. Yeah, this has been a huge thrill to get you in the room. Like, we always love getting people in the room when we can. And, you know, we, ne- we never really thought this could happen in the first place. So, well, yeah. yeah. Come to California. Spotlight Road Trip. That would be great. To all our listeners at home, you can find us at Spotlight Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bob is not on social media. <laughs> But Sandra is. Yes, Sandra Salen. Look me up on Instagram. And you can see Bob on Sandra's Instagram stories. Right. Well, I'm actually going to start doing some YouTube videos, and since he's been such a hit on Instagram, I think I'm going to get him on uh, YouTube also. You definitely should. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So come and find us on social media. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. They should leave us a five-star review, shouldn't they, Bob? Absolutely. (laughs) At the very least. At the very least. You've got six stars, says Bob (laughs) Sam. Thanks for joining us, as always, and we will see you again soon. Goodbye from all of us here at the Royal Air Force Club. Goodbye. Bye-bye. So long. Thank you.